You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. It's so great, isn't it, to be part of the body of Christ that reaches out in so many ways. And just what a joy and encouragement to see what the Lord's doing in Monterrey through uh, El Rancho del Rey. And many of us have participated in that ministry. So we're a big part of that, as uh, Danny shared. And, uh, and especially hearing from Vera here and just the, the powerful ways that she has used the Lord has used her and the, and the gifts and the talents that are invested in this vessel and uh, to be able to support her in prayer and financially it's just it's an honor and a joy to be part of Living Word and uh, uh, we, we go with them as, the, as they go and as they minister. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well I want to ask you a, a question and uh, you can feel free to either answer quietly or, or write out loud however you feel comfortable. Uh, but, I, but think about it for just a minute before you answer, okay? And this is the question. Does the Lord know and does he have a plan for every single individual on the face of the earth? I hear some yeses. You sure about that? Did you know that there are 7.9 billion people on this planet, almost 8 billion. Is it possible that the Lord knows and loves and has a call and a plan for every single one of those people? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? So last week, uh, st standing in, the, in this spot, we heard, we heard an anointed message from my brother Ephraim about the prophet Jeremiah, as we've been reading in Jeremiah. We're not going to be sharing from Jeremiah today. But um, Ephraim uh, mentioned a verse in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, um, where the Lord says this to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were even born, I, uh, I appointed you, I consecrated you, and I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. But that was Jeremiah, right? I mean, he was a mighty prophet of the Lord, and uh, so, of course, he had a special call on his life. But what about you? Does the Lord have a special call on your life? Does he know you? Does he have a plan for your life? And I know that many of us would answer that by saying yes. And I, I hope that um, as we look at a passage in John chapter 5, uh, that you'll think about the Lord's call and the Lord's plan for your life. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'd love it if you would grab it now and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter five. There's an amazing story that, the, that John records for us about a man who had an encounter with Jesus that transformed and changed his life. In John chapter five, Jesus went up to uh, Jerusalem and there is in Jerusalem, this is John chapter 5, verse 2, if you're with me. There is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. By the way, the word Bethesda is a Hebrew word that means house of grace or house of mercy. And we're going to see how a man received grace and mercy at Bethesda by a pool. 
The pool had, has five porticos, and in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at, uh, at certain times, at certain seasons, into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that, a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man uh, to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus says to, to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, there's a couple of verses where John explains the, the, re, the result of this miracle on the, on the Jews that were there. And um, they were criticizing the man for breaking the Sabbath. And um, they asked him why he was doing it, and he did a good thing. He blamed it on Jesus. He said, there was the, the, I'm, doing, I'm, I pick, I'm carrying my bed because the man who made me well told me to do it. And they were looking for him, and who was he? Uh, but the man, got, skipping ahead to around verse 13, the man who was healed didn't know, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple, and he says to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. What an incredible counter encounter. A man whose life was dramatically changed just simply because Jesus approached him. Jesus only said three things to him, as, as recorded here by John. The first is a question, the second is a command, and the third is a warning. The question, the command, the warning at the Pool of Bethesda. Dramatic transformation in one man's life. This is one of a series of powerful conversations that the Lord Jesus has with individuals as recorded uniquely in the Gospel of John. You may know that um, the Gospel, in the Gospel of John, there are a bunch, a series really of conversations, life-changing encounters that the Lord Jesus Christ had with a variety of people from all walks of life. And uh, the, uh, these conversations are not recorded in the Synoptic Gospel, so we have them only in this amazing book that we call the Gospel of John. And in each one, Jesus changed someone's life. And in each one, Jesus personally connected with an individual. And here, it's with uh, a man at the Pool of Bethesda. If you just, just to sketch out just a couple of them, and you can think through these if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, uh, in John chapter 1, Jesus uh, changed the life of a man named Nathaniel, 
Philip came to his brother Nathaniel and he said, we found the Christ. And Nathaniel came to Jesus to see if it was true, being skeptical as he was. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no guile. And Nathaniel said, how, how, how do you know me? And Jesus said to Nathaniel, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Just like the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus saw, Jesus knew. There are many times when in, our, in the course of our lives, particularly when we're going through trial and difficulty and suffering, we wonder whether Jesus really knows, whether he really has a plan. Is he really aware? Lord, do you see the mess I'm in? Jesus saw, Jesus knew. Continuing a little bit to just in the Gospel of John, you know in John chapter 3 you'll remember that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're sent from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God was with him. And Jesus said to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this is really a strange thing to say and you can, we can hear Nicodemus grappling with it. And so he says to Jesus, how can a man be born again? Can I, he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus incredulously asks him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In the next chapter, in John chapter 4, there's a woman who comes to a well at a town called Sychar, and she comes just to get some water. And there's a young rabbi sitting there and asks her for a drink. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was he asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He said, whoever drinks this water will get thirsty again, but the one that drinks the water that I give him, that water will become within him a well springing up to eternal life. He then proceeded to tell her everything she'd ever done. When she realized that this was the Messiah, she went and she told her acquaintances in the, and the whole, so the whole town of Sychar came to the Lord Jesus, John chapter four. And then here we are in John chapter five with yet another amazing encounter. And it just goes on throughout this incredible book. And there's so many we could mention, but I'm just thinking of uh, Jesus at, um, before the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Martha comes to him in, in her grief and she says, Lord, if you were here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Mar she said, I know that he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me will live even if he dies and he who believes in, he who dies and will, will um, and believes in me will live again. And then he said to her, do you believe this? Always the questions, the probing questions. Jesus doesn't ask questions to obtain information. He knows everything already, right? Jesus asks questions of us as he did of Martha and as he does the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus asks questions to show us what's in our heart. Do you believe this, Martha? More questions. There's so many other encounters that Jesus has, but I'll just mention one more, and that is after the resurrection, 
that Jesus comes uh, and appears to his disciples at the, at the shores of the Sea of Galilee and feeds them an amazing meal of, of freshly roasted fish and bread. And after breakfast, Jesus takes Peter on a walk with him. It, it being fresh in both men's minds, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Tend my lambs. The third time Jesus asked the question, Peter's grieved, and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. Powerful encounters that the Lord Jesus had. So uh, going back again to chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 2. Jesus comes up uh, to the, to the, through the porticos, and uh, it says that in, the, in these porticos lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. The multitude of the people that were at the Pool of Bethesda, sick, blind, lame, withered, to me are a microcosm of all of humankind throughout all of human history because we're all sick and blind and lame and withered, many physically sick and waiting for something to happen. How many of you are waiting for healing here today? Anybody else? Praying for someone who's waiting for healing? But there's another kind of sickness that's even more universal than physical sickness and that is the sickness of alienation from God as a result of the fall and as a result of the sin that each of us has committed in our own lives. And we're, we're sick and blind and, and, and withered, and we're just waiting for something to happen, like that multitude was. When you look at people around you in the world, how do they seem to you? Everybody seems like they're doing okay, right? When you ask someone how they're doing, what's the classic response is fine. Well, actually now what people say is good, I'm good. Well, are you really good? The fact is that our classmates, our neighbors, our work, the people that we work with, the people in, in our families and extended families are hurting. And the, many of them are carrying a secret pain. Henry David Thoreau, great nature writer and transcendentalist philosopher said this, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Quiet desperation. This is the lot of all mankind. And Jesus came to up to them, right up to the crowd at the pool of Bethesda. What are you waiting for? Some miracle, something to happen, the waters to be stirred up? Something great has got to happen. I had a barber, an, older, an elderly man years ago. Ryan and I used to go to him when Ryan was a kid. And uh, the dear old man, his name was Charles, and uh, Charles was a, a man of very humble means. Um, and he took the little, his little bit of money every day and put a big chunk of it on the lottery because he just believed that, you know, one, and he said, he said, boss, he, he liked to call his customers boss, boss, someday my number's going to come up and I'm going to win the lottery. Charles died having never won the lottery. 
but we're all waiting for something. And what is, where is our hope? There is ultimately only one real hope, only one genuine hope. So Jesus comes up to this crowd and uh, he walks up to the microphone and says, is this thing on? Testing, testing, testing. All of you sick people here, I'm here now. Forget about the angel, forget about the stirring of the waters because I, Jesus, I'm here to heal you. Is that what he does? Could he have done that? Jesus can do anything, right? Is there anything that's too difficult for the Lord? And in fact, just two chapters later in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus does address the whole crowd at one time. It says that the last day of the great day of the feast, he stands up and he cries with a loud voice. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus could have done that at the pool of Bethesda, but he didn't. Instead, he just came up to one man. Isn't that incredible? And what happens when he comes up to the man? Jesus saw he had already been in that condition for a long time, 38 years. Jesus knew him. And um, so he comes up to him and uh, he says to him, after, after seeing that he had been there for a long time, he comes up to the man and addresses him directly and says, do you wish to get well? Do you want to get well? First the question, later the command, later the warning. Do you want to get well? Now, if I was the, the man who had been crippled and waiting for 38 years, I would say, I might be tempted to say, that's kind of a stupid question. <laughs> of course I want to get well. I mean, you know I've been here 38 years, right? Why do you think I'm lying out here for my health? Yes, I am lying out here for my health. Jesus asks questions because he knows what's in our hearts. Is it possible to be sick and to be suffering for a long time and to not want to get well? Yes. There are lots of people who may enjoy uh, the dependency, the inactivity, uh, the lack of responsibility that comes with being sick. We like having people take care of us. We like people to feel sorry for us. And one of the, one of the weird uh, psychological uh, phenomena is self-pity because it actually feels good in a sick sort of way to think, oh, I have it so bad. Nobody suffers like I suffer and in silence. You know, and, and, and so, you know, Jesus comes up and he asks him a real question. Do you want to get well? Because he doesn't force his healing on people. And he wants to know what the man's answer is. Do you want to get well? And he doesn't answer him directly. Did you notice that he said, well, he, in, a, in a sense, what the man says to Jesus is sort of like an excuse. He says, well, I'm too slow. You know, when, when the angel stirs up the water, and I, I have to wait for to have somebody put me in. And while I'm, while I'm going down, someone else steps, steps in ahead of me. So the miracle's gone. The blessing's gone. And so the, I, don't, I sort of have an excuse for not being well. And uh, so Jesus uh, says, well, 
this is the, your, your day has come. This is the time when your life can be changed. Do you want, do you wish to get well? You know, one thing I notice is that Jesus, that Jesus does not do for the man is offer him sympathy. And I would have done that. You probably would have too. You know, you, you know someone's been suffering and with a disease for 38 years. You say, oh, you poor dear. They're there. Oh, my heart goes out. My heart breaks to think of all the years of suffering that you have experienced. Jesus doesn't do that. Would sympathy have helped this man? What does Jesus do? Get up. Pick up your bed. Pick up your pallet and walk. Get up and walk. This is the moment where everything changes. The challenge. Could he have said no? Sure. He could have said, you know, I think it's actually kind of cruel for you to tell me to get up and walk and carry my bed, knowing that I'm crippled. Isn't that sort of a mean thing to do to someone who's, 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 who's sick and who's ill? Would you give a newspaper to a blind man and ask him to read the headlines to you? That's kind of mean, isn't it? But he doesn't, he doesn't respond in that way. In that moment, it's the moment of obedience. This is the fulcrum upon which the Christian life turns. It is our obedience. What has Jesus told you to do? Are you doing it? Or are you making excuses? Obedience. That's why the Lord called you and called me. And that's why he saved us. There's a powerful passage in 1 Peter. I, I won't turn there, but if you want to check it out, it's in the 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter kind of explains it all. And he says, God called us. Uh, he, he foreknew us. He sanctified us by the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. He foreknew us. He set us apart by the Holy Spirit, just as truly as he did Jeremiah from his mother's womb, for one purpose, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It's all about obedience. You know, I think a lot of us think that the Lord saved us, called us, knew us, foreknew us, set us apart by the Holy Spirit to make us happy, to make us successful, to give us financial prosperity. So the gospel of the world that the world often preaches is this. Jesus came to help you fulfill all of your personal goals. So just come to Jesus and all your, you'll, all your goals, all your needs will be met. That's not why the Lord called us. The Lord called us to obey Jesus Christ. And so here, in this critical moment for this man, he does it. He, 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 he gets up, he picks up his pallet, and he walks. And it says, immediately, 
He did it. He got up, he picked up his pallet, and he began to walk. Interesting, isn't it, that John does not say immediately he, he, became, he became well and immediately he was carried by angels into the presence of God and he reclined on the bosom of Abraham and he, he had reached his goal. When you first obey Jesus Christ or when you obey him today when he tells you to do something, you haven't reached your goal. You haven't gotten to the end. You've just begun to walk. And John uses this specific language. He said he began to walk. Christian life is all about walking. Isaiah 40 tells us that they who wait on the Lord will walk and not faint. The Apostle Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit and not so we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. He says we walk by faith and not by sight. It's all about walking. You like to walk? Good. Personally, I love to walk. It's one of my favorite things to do. If you want to invite me to take a hike or a walk with you, I will say yes. I like to walk all different kinds of places. I, I like to walk on muddy trails through Fairmount Park, and I've done that with a couple of brothers recently. And I like to walk on uh, the mountaintops in the Adirondacks, which we have a chance to do often in the summertime. And I like to walk particularly along coastlines uh, where the ocean, uh, ocean's waves come in. One of my favorite places around here is Stone Harbor, New Jersey. I don't know how many of you have been to Stone Harbor. It's a little north of Cape May. But um, when you go to Stone Harbor Point, if, when you drive um, to the end of Stone Harbor Boulevard, there's a big parking lot there. And if you go there in the warmer months, you walk through the parking lot, and there's a, a huge beach uh, and stretched out in front of you. And to the left, you'll see many people lying out on the sand, working on their tans. But if instead of going to the left, you go to the right, there's a beautiful uh, trail that goes uh, along the edge of the coastal forest, Stone Harbor, and um, you have the ocean on your left and uh, the, the, uh, the coastal forest, the, what they call the dune forest on the right. Beautiful place to walk. It's a long walk uh, along the beach. Beautiful place to look for shells. And at the end, during certain seasons, there are huge brown pelicans roosting there at Stone Harbor Point. I love to walk. The only place, I hope you like to walk, the only place I don't like to walk is in the mall. So, you know, some people actually do that. They go to the mall just to walk in the mall. So if you, if you invite me to walk in the mall with you, I'll probably find a convenient excuse to not go with you, but any place else except the mall. Jesus liked to walk. Jesus walked a lot. He walked all over Galilee, all over Judea. Do you know why Jesus walked so much? There's one reason that's a, a kind of not explicitly laid out in the scriptures, but I'm pretty sure I can confidently say Jesus did not walk. Uh, Jesus walked a lot because he did not have a motor scooter. And uh, so, you know, he couldn't go fast, zip around, get places, places fast. And I have a lot of images in my mind of Jesus during his earthly ministry, you know, walking on the water and uh, 
doing lots of different things, but I just can't get an image in my mind of Jesus zipping out on a motor scooter, you know, with his robe flapping in the breeze. It just doesn't work for me. I don't know about you, but uh, so Jesus walked um, not just to reach destinations, not just for transportation, but he walked for the purpose of discipling people. And there are beautiful accounts in the scriptures of Jesus discipling people as he walked with them. And uh, I mentioned already his walk with Peter um, after the resurrection on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And um, he, uh, he said to Peter, I want to tell you something about, what's, about your life, Peter. He said, when you were younger, you used to walk wherever you wished. You would, gird, you would rise up and gird yourself and go wherever you wished. When you get older, someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And he said this, indicating the kind of death that Peter would die and, and glorify God. And Peter turns around and he sees the Apostle John, who wrote the account, following them. And he says, what, Lord, what about this man? And uh, Jesus says to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Another uh, beautiful account of Jesus' discipleship during a long walk is in the, in the Gospel of Luke. It's also after the resurrection. And many of you will remember that two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And Jesus just walks up to, it, to them. And he horns right in on their conversation. You know, Jesus wasn't famous for being the most polite person on the face of the earth, and he just, just broke right in on their conversation. And I say, Lord Jesus, if I'm talking to someone and you want to feel free to break in any time, because we want to hear what you have to say. And he asked them a question, again, these probing questions that Jesus seems to like to ask. What are you talking about as you're walking along? And they stand still looking sad and um, they say to him, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened during these days? What things? Jesus so innocently asked, what things? And they say, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And uh, our chief priests and scribes delivered him up to be crucified. We believe that he was going to deliver Israel. And then more, it's the third day since these things happened. Oh, foolish men and slow to heart of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and so to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, he explained to them himself in all of the scriptures. He caused their hearts to burn within them. You'll learn some things when you walk with Jesus. But let's get back to the Pool of Bethesda. Don't let me get off on these wild tangents. You know, I, this, this is what I say to myself. If Carl Dreer could get off on the tangents that he preaches, then maybe I can too. Blame it on Carl. So many things were really his fault. So the man responds. Immediately he's made well. He gets up, carries his pallet, and begins to walk. The very first thing that happens to this guy very beginning of his new walk of faith is he gets hassled by the Jews. Gee, I thought it was all going to be easy if I obeyed you, Lord Jesus. No, the very first thing is that they give him a hard time for breaking the rules of the Sabbath 
and uh, they say it's not lawful, it's not permissible for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. And he does the right thing. He blames it on Jesus. He says, I'm doing it because Jesus told me to. If, you, if you're doing something in obedience to Jesus and you get in trouble for it, blame it on him. He's got broad shoulders and you'll be in a good place. So they're looking around. They're trying to find Jesus, you know, and he says, wait, wait a minute. What happened to him? He was here a minute ago. Where'd he go? It says in verse 13 uh, that he slipped away because there was a crowd in that place. You know, I think Jesus would have made a great secret agent. He knew how to slip away when he wanted to. Was that because he was afraid of controversy? Au contraire. Exactly the opposite is true. In fact, sometimes it seems like Jesus actually provokes controversy. Christ the Controversialist. That's the title of a book written by John Stott, great Anglican uh, pastor and preacher and theologian. John Stott, I highly recommend the book Christ the Controversialist. He was really a troublemaker. So why in this case did he slip away? Could he have confronted the Pharisees? Yes, of course, and he often did and probed them with his searing questions. But in this case, he was nowhere to be found. He'd slipped away. Why did he do that? Jesus did not come to the Pool of Bethesda to get into a theological argument with a bunch of Jews. He came to the Pool of Bethesda to heal a man and to set him free from his sin. And so he follows up on him. It says in verse 14, John chapter 5, 14, afterwards Jesus found the man in the temple and he says to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Is there a connection between the illness which this man endured for 38 years and sin in his life? Jesus strongly suggests that there is. You become well, don't sin so that nothing worse may befall you. First the question, then the command, and now the warning. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Is, is sickness always a result of sin? Absolutely not. In John chapter 9, just a couple of chapters after this, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, this man who was born blind, who sinned? Was it him or his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus said, it was neither he that sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Sin is not, uh, sickness is not always the result of sin, but often, often it is. In another account in the Gospels, they dig a hole in the roof because they can't get to Jesus and they lower down through the hole a paralytic lying on his bed. And um, Jesus says not what they expected him to say. Do you remember what he, he says to him? My son, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute, Jesus. I think you're missing the point here. We didn't bring him to you to, to forgive his sins. We bring, brought him to you so you'd heal him of his paralysis. Yeah, but I came to save the whole person. I came to forgive his sins, and I, came, and I also have the authority to heal his body because I care about spirit and soul and body. Jesus cares about the entire individual. And oftentimes, sickness is the result of sin. 
another incredibly poignant conversation, private conversation, intense personal encounter that Jesus has with another individual in the Gospel of John is in chapter 8. And you, pay, you probably remember that the Pharisees caught a woman in the very act of adultery. And they brought, him before, they brought her before Jesus and they threw her down in front of him. Moses commanded us to stone such as these. What do you say? Didn't even answer them. Ignored their question. He kneeled down, he wrote with his finger in the dirt. And they persisted in asking him. And he straightened up and he said, the one who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. In that moment of, of anger mixed with shame, they go out one by one and Jesus is left alone with the woman. Where are your accusers, woman? Did no one condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Earlier in John chapter 3, we learned that Jesus, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be saved. He said, I don't condemn you either. Oh, and by the way, go and sin no more. Don't think that the fact that you have broken the seventh commandment escaped my notice. I want to save you completely, save you from, from a violent, sudden death, a powerful, painful death by stoning. I also want to save you from your sin because Jesus comes to save completely. He sa comes to save to the uttermost. Go and sin no more. So it's that the man to whom Jesus ministered at the pool of Bethesda, he asks him a probing question. He gives him a specific demand. In that critical moment, he obeys Jesus. Then he warns him. What questions is Jesus asking you? What has he told you to do? Are you doing it? Or are you procrastinating? Are you making excuses? The Lord tells you to do something. You say, well, yeah, that's probably a pretty good idea. I think I'll pray about that. No, don't pray about it. Obey. According to Peter, that's what we've been saved for. That's why we've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Throughout this incredible gospel of John, we see instant Instance after instance of Jesus coming in and dramatically changing people's lives. And um, the answer, as you, most of you got early on, is yes. God really does know and really does have a plan for that whole multitude. Before Jesus fed the 5,000, it says he, 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 he looked on the multitude and he felt compassion on them he, because they were distressed downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. The shepherds come. The shepherd's here to transform our lives. He wants to save us completely, spirit and soul and body, and make us new people. Isn't that incredible? Lord Jesus, 
we're just overwhelmed by your grace. We're overwhelmed by your love. You promised us that if you, the Son, would set us free, we'd be free indeed. Lord Jesus, we thank you for holding up to us a mirror in your word. And Lord, we see ourselves in that multitude of sick and blind and ill and lame waiting for something to happen. And there's only one thing that makes any difference, and that is when you come. Lord, help us to take your question seriously and to, and to obey you when you tell us what to do and to heed your warnings. Thank you so much for, Lord, loving me enough to, to do all that for me, even as you did for the man at the Pool of Bethesda and for each of my brothers and sisters here. Thank you.